For those of you who are visiting us this morning, just a few weeks ago we finished a study on the book of Exodus, and now as we prepare for Christmas, we are seeking to explore and to find and discover ways in which Christ fulfills some of the major themes in the book of Exodus. And the theme that we are considering this morning is the theme of testimony. The theme of testimony. Now before we go any further, let me clarify what I mean by testimony. We're not referring simply to giving our personal testimonies uh, or our personal life stories. If you grew up in church for a long time, especially in a Baptist church or an evangelical church, you may have heard this phrase around, give me your testimony. Well, the way Scripture uses testimony, especially in the book of Exodus, it's not so much about our life story, but about the sense or the meaning of, of witness as someone who has been there to witness an event or the meaning of testifying to something that you have seen or experienced. So that's the way the book of Exodus uses uh, the notion of, of testimony, and that's the way we're going to be talking about it today. Now in Exodus, in the book of Exodus, the notion of testimony appears strongly, especially once God made a covenant with His people. In particular, three very important objects in the book of Exodus are described through this language of testimony. For those of you who have been here in our study of Exodus, can you think of what might be the, the most three important objects, the most important objects in the book of Exodus? One would be the stones that God used to inscribe the Ten Commandments. The two tablets of stones are described in the book of Exodus as the stones of testimony or literally as the testimony. Let me read a few verses for us this morning. You don't have to turn your Bible there. Just, just listen to these verses. Exodus 25, 21. Place a cover on top of the ark and put in the ark the testimony which I will give you. Now, this, from this verse, we, we don't necessarily see explicitly that this refers to the tablets of stone, but if we read Exodus 31, verse 18, we say, the Lord says, When the Lord finished speaking to Moses on Mount Sinai, He gave him the two tablets of the testimony. The tablets of stone inscribed by the finger of God. So the tablets of stone on which God wrote with His own finger the Ten Commandments are described as the testimony. The second major object, and most important object in the book of Exodus, is the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the Ark of the Covenant is also described through this language of testimony. Now remember the Ark of the Covenant was this box that included the testimony, the Ten Commandments, the two tablets of stone. It was covered with a, with a gold covering, and on this gold covering the priest would, would come every year, once a year, and would sprinkle the blood of sacrifices. And on top of, of this cover, there would be two cherubim that were looking down at the ark. And God says in Exodus 25, 22, there, above the cover, between the two cherubim that are over the cover, over the ark of the testimony, I will meet with you. How amazing that God chooses to meet with us right above the ark of the testimony. And then there's a third important object in the book of, of Exodus that has the description as testimony, and that's a tabernacle. Um, the tab tabernacle or the tent of meeting is often called um, the testimony or the tabernacle of testimony. Just one example, in Exodus 38, these are the amounts of materials used for the tabernacle, 
the tabernacle of testimony. Now, why do I bring this up? Because these are themes that we have discovered and experienced in the book of Exodus as we studied it. And testimony is an important part of what God did in the book of Exodus. These symbols God left to the people to testify of His covenant. They're as if they're the, the witnesses of what God did with Israel. The stones, the tablets of stones, which describe the Word of God, stand as a testimony of God's covenant. The ark, which was the place where people brought sacrifices, was a testimony, was a, was a testification, a witness of the fact that God is merciful and, re, and, and forgives sinners. And then the tent of meeting was a testimony, an ongoing testimony to the fact that the God they worshipped came to, to live with them, to, to dwell among them, and therefore this tent was called the tent of testimony. Well, as we come to the New Testament, and especially in the Gospel of John, we discover that Jesus, when He describes His own ministry, He oftentimes uses the language of testimony. His own work and ministry was to testify or to bring testimony about the things of God, about the things that happened above. And Jesus came down on earth to testify to us about those things. And therefore, the title of my message this morning is called Christ, the Testimony of God. Let's open Scripture to the book of John, chapter 3. We'll be reading from verse 1 to 15. The Gospel of John, chapter 3, will be reading from, from verse 1 to 15. As a matter of fact, in order to, to gain some context of, of what happened prior to this verse, I would like to encourage us to begin reading in chapter 2, verse 23. So John, chapter 3, that's our passage, but we'll start reading in chapter 2, verse 23. Here's the word of the Lord for us and for our hearts this morning. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need men's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one could perform the miraculous signs you are doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. How can a man be born when he's old? Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born, can he? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth. No one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to Spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, 
you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth. We speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How will you believe if I speak you of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Amen. This is our word from the Lord this morning. Let's pray for our hearts. Father, we thank you for the revelation of Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he came to us to testify about the things of heaven. Lord, we pray that you allow this testimony to, to fall in good ears. We pray for our hearts that they would be tender and open to receive your word and to believe it. In the name of Jesus, we pray, and for his glory and honor. Amen. Well, this text in John is very familiar to many of us. Because it's a text that talks about the new birth that most of us have heard many sermons. But it's also very familiar to us because it is the passage that leads up to the most, in, most well-known verse in the entire Bible. John 3.16 Yet the conversation with Nicodemus must be understood against the backdrop of the few verses we read in chapter 2. In John 2, 23 and 25. And I would like to read these verses again because we cannot overemphasize the importance of these verses for the text we read this morning. Now, while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous signs he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about men, for he knew what was in a man. Friends, if we allow this passage to just sit in and, 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 and penetrate us, we realize that this is a bleak reality of the spiritual condition of the nation of Israel. Even those who were impressed by the signs that Jesus made, even those who were impressed by his signs, apparently do not receive a very high marking from Jesus because it appears that their faith was superficial and misinformed. Now this is a strong caution for us who claim to believe in Jesus. We talk today very easily about believing in God. Who doesn't believe in God these days? Well, there are some who don't. But especially if you live in Texas, in America, most people say, yeah, I believe in God. Who wouldn't believe in God? Who wouldn't believe in Jesus? And most people like to think of themselves as spiritual. Yet the most important thing and the most important part is not what we think about God, 
but what he thinks about our spirituality. So the example of, of these Jews and Jesus' impression of them is a caution for us not to fall for a superficial or misinformed faith. It's against this background that we read about the dialogue that Nicodemus had with Jesus. And in this dialogue, we see the testimony of God brought to mankind through what Jesus testified. Notice, three times in this passage, Jesus tells Nicodemus, I tell you the truth, or truly, truly, I say to you, this is language of a testimony. And then in, in, in verse 11, he clearly says, and you do not receive our testimony. Where the words of Jesus are the testimony of God to us. And therefore, as we look at this testimony this morning, I would like to notice three things about the testimony of Jesus. It's a radical testimony. It's a rejected testimony. And thirdly, it's a restoring testimony. A radical testimony, a rejected testimony, a restoring testimony. And if you like to take notes, the first point, a radical testimony, we notice this in verses 1 through 10 in our passage. Now, a number of scholars uh, consider this dialogue between Nicodemus as an example of the superficial faith that Jesus encountered in chapter, 22, in chapter 2, verse 23 to, through 25. And surely Nicodemus' mention of the signs that Jesus performed speak to this connection. Nicodemus, too, was among those who was impressed by the signs of Jesus. And he believed in Jesus. He was part of the crowd in chapter 2. He believed that Jesus was a teacher who came from God. But the question is, was this faith enough? Was this faith adequate? And as we read and look at this dialogue, we find that Nicodemus had a hard time understanding the message of Jesus, even though he was impressed by Jesus' signs. Friends, let me just pause here for a moment. How often people today fall in the same trap. They may be easily impressed by the miraculous encounters with the divine, but they have a hard time accepting the actual teachings of Jesus. Well, as soon as Jesus hears the good words that Nicodemus has for Jesus, the good words, the impre good impression that Jesus faced or, or formed in, on, on Nicodemus, Jesus diverts the discussion from Nicodemus' superficial and misinformed faith to the heart of the matter. He goes straight to the point. And Jesus, look at verse 3. He says, I tell you the truth. And it's as if, it's as if Jesus is is cutting off Nicodemus' dialogue and says, hold on, Nicodemus, I tell you the truth. It's not about the, the good impressions you have about me. I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Now the word for born again also has a sense of being born from above. And this Nicodemus even though he was a religious leader of Israel, even though he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come, and by the way, let me just pause there, every good Jew would wait for the kingdom of God to come. This was a promise of the Old Testament that God and His reign would come to Israel and to, to the earth. 
and the reign of God would be manifested in Israel and on the earth by the fact that Israel would be free and that God would reign across the entire earth without any obstacles. Every Jew was expecting this. Nicodemus was not a, an atheist. He was not an agnostic. He was a very religious man. He was longing for the kingdom of God to come. And he was a religious leader. He was a teacher of Israel. And yet to this religious leader who was longing for the kingdom of God to come, Jesus gives him a startling claim, a radical testimony saying, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he's born again. Can you imagine what was going on through, this, uh, through the mind of this, of this leader? He may have asked, what do you mean? I am the leader of Israel. What do you mean I have to be born again? Well, he didn't ask it exactly in those words. But if you look at the way he asked, he did say, how can a man be born when he is old? Clearly referring to himself. Now, my friend, let me pause here for a moment. If you're here this morning, perhaps you're a visitor, or perhaps you, you, you came this morning because somebody invited you to church, or you've been with us before, and you're a regular attender of this church, but this language of new birth is not familiar to you. Friend, you are in great company this morning. Because Nicodemus didn't get it either. And he was a teacher of Israel. He was a religious leader. Three times he asks Jesus, how is this possible? How is this happening? Look at verse 4. How can a man be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked. And then the second question is, surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb to be born. Can he? And then even after Jesus explains to him how and why this is possible and needed, in verse 9, if you look down in verse 9, Nicodemus still says, how can this be? Friends, this is a radical testimony because it tells us the condition which must be met even by the high religious leaders of Israel. And in, in verses 5 through 10, we see Jesus' explanation why the new birth is necessary. Because no one, and that includes Nicodemus as well, and that includes me, and that includes you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he's born of water and spirit. That's what we read in verse 5. The expression of water and spirit has a number of possibilities. And some people would say, well, it refers to the water of, of baptism. And today we will have a baptism service. So some say it refers to being baptized. Reality is if we look at the passage carefully, there's nothing in the text that would tell us that the water refers to water baptism. Others would say, well, it might refer to simply our natural birth. We're, we're born of flesh. Well, again, nothing in this passage tells us that in order to be seeing the kingdom of God and to enter in it, we must be born from flesh. If anything, this passage says it is not enough to be born of flesh. There's another hint in this passage that I think we need to take in very seriously, very carefully. Jesus tells Nicodemus 
you are a teacher of Israel and you don't understand this? In other words, Jesus is surprised that Nicodemus as a teacher of Israel who, who taught the nation of Israel the, the laws of God, the, the scriptures of the Old Testament, he would not get it. Why was he supposed to get it? Because even in the Old Testament, God foretold a time when he will do something new. God told, gave prophecies to the Old Testament people and told them about the new thing that God will do. And one place where God combines the notion of water and spirit is in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 36. And we don't have time to read the enti entire chapter 36. I encourage you, go home and read this chapter for your benefit. It will surprise you what it's written in those words, in, those, in that part of the Scripture. But there are just two words, two verses in Ezekiel 36 that I would like for us to read this morning. God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Now, this does not refer to water baptism. It simply refers to God's act of removing our sins and our idols from our hearts. Now, we don't know from this passage where the water is coming from or what exactly that water symbolizes, but it's simply, it's simply a way, a picture of telling us that God will provide water for us to cleanse us, to cleanse us of our sins, to cleanse us of our impurities. And then it goes on, verse 26 and 27, and I will give you a new heart. And a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statues and be careful to obey my rules. Do you hear this combination of water and spirit? Nicodemus was supposed to know these prophecies. Nicodemus was supposed to know the promises that God made to Israel long ago that God will bring His water and spirit and he will, he will cleanse the people and He will give them a new spirit, a new heart. And now Jesus says, unless you are born of water and spirit. What water? Not baptism or, or our natural birth. The water that God promised in the book of Ezekiel that He will use to cleanse us. In other words... In the words of, of, a, of a New Testament scholar by the name of D.A. Carson, born of water and spirit single, signals a new begetting, a new birth that cleanses and renews. Friends, this new birth is a new nature that is given to us, and it is different than our birth-given nature. The testimony of Jesus is radical because he speaks of a radical change that we need to experience. And let me be very open with you. The change that's talking about here is not simply, well, let me improve my behavior. Or let me stop doing this or stop doing that. And if I really become a better man or a better woman, if I really prove worthy uh, of God, then, then God will accept me. Friends, what Jesus is talking about here is that we need a new nature altogether, a nature that is different than our birth-given nature, a deeper change 
Friends, we cannot fabricate this new change. We cannot give ourselves this new nature. It is a new nature that comes to us from above. It's a nature that is given to us. And three times Jesus tells Nicodemus, this Jewish leader, this teacher of Israel, that the new birth is absolutely necessary to see the kingdom of God. Finally, in verse 8, Jesus says, For the last time, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. Friends, if Israel's religious leader, who considered himself to be a part of God's people, needed to experience this new birth, how much more do we need it today? My friend, if you are a Christian this morning, I would like to ask you, how much do you pay attention to this new birth you received? Do you live your life guided by this new nature? Or are you still living in your own sinful patterns and mindset? Just because you call yourself a Christian, or just because you go to church, or just because you serve the church, does not make you a Christian. Only those who have experienced a new birth, a new change of natures, can be called true Christians. Friend, if you are not a Christian this morning, or if you, th if you think you are but you're not sure about your new nature, about your new birth, I would like to ask you, do you hear the need for the new birth that Jesus is telling us this morning? Do you understand that there's no way for us to see the kingdom of God and to enter the kingdom of God without this new birth? Friend, the nature we inherited from our parents is corrupted by evil and sin, and therefore we deserve God's wrath. Not because we sin, but because we, because we inherited a sinful nature. He's willing though, God is willing despite the wrath He would bring against us. He loves us so much that He's willing to provide a way for us to avoid that wrath. And instead of being co-signed forever to hell, He's willing to make a way for us so that we may spend eternity with Him. And He loved us so much that, Jesus sent, that God sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, so that in Him and through Him we might experience this new birth. If you're, dear friend, if you're here this morning and you do not have this new birth, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. Don't let this matter go by. Don't ignore it. It's not about your religious background. It's not about your religious experience. It's whether or not you have been born again. Friends, the testimony of God with Jesus, which Jesus brought to us is radical. It insults our religious pride and our religious efforts. It says that no matter how religious we try to be, unless we have this new birth, there's no way we can enter the kingdom of God. Our good deeds will not be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. Our great knowledge of the Bible, as Nicodemus had it, will not be good enough to enter the kingdom of God. Only if we experience this new birth, the birth that comes from above, the birth that is enacted through the water of God that cleanses us and through the Spirit of God that gives us a new spirit, Friends, this radical testimony is a testimony that Jesus brought to mankind. Do you have this new birth? Have you experienced this new nature? But it's not only a, a, a radical testimony, it's a rejected testimony. 
Look at verses 11 through 13. We could sympathize with Nicodemus. His inability to get it. And especially if you're here this morning and you don't get it, it's very easy for us to sympathize with him and say, Jesus, why did you expect Nicodemus to know these things? It's unfair. Well, notice though what Jesus, how Jesus diagnoses Nicodemus's lack of ability to understand the words of Jesus. Verse 11, and it's not only a diagnosis for Nicodemus, it's a diagnosis for the entire nation of Israel. I tell you the truth, Jesus said, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen. But still, you people do not accept our testimony. Some of you may wonder, why is Jesus talking about our testimony? Well, this is a, a, a style of, of, of speaking. Notice Nicodemus addressed Jesus in verse 1. We know you are a man from God. Well, who's the we? If it was just Nicodemus and Jesus. Well, sometimes you can talk about yourself by using the plural. And I think Jesus, Jesus is doing the same here in verse 11. But you people do not accept our testimony. In other words, but you, Nicodemus, do not accept my testimony. In other words, the reason why Nicodemus was not able to accept Jesus' teaching and claims was not due to an intellectual inability, but it was, a, it was caused by his refusal to accept and believe the testimony of Jesus. Now, why should Nicodemus have believed and accepted the testimony of Jesus? Look at verse 13. It gives us a reason. It gives us a reason why we as well should accept and believe the testimony of Jesus. No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, Jesus came to testify about the things he saw above. And he told us, what is the way to God? Elsewhere, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And he says this to the nation of Israel who thought they were the people of God. Jesus is radical towards his own people. He's radical towards us. There are many, uh, many today who continue to refuse the testimony of Jesus. And the words of Jesus in, in John chapter 5 are a sad diagnosis for the human condition. A condition which first applied to Israel, but also to us. Here's what Jesus says in, in John 5, 39 and 40. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Jewish leaders, the, 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 the scribes, the Pharisees were searching the scriptures. They were very religious. But those very scriptures point you towards Jesus, yet these religious leaders were refusing to come to Jesus. Friends, this is, this is the, the, the sad diagnosis of the human condition. That even in our religiosity, even in our own religious backgrounds, we still refuse to come to Jesus. If it's possible even for a religious leader who examined the scriptures to refuse to accept the testimony of God, my dear friend, I want to ask you this morning, how much more is it possible and is this danger, danger real for us who may not be interested in the things of God? Religion, my dear friends, is not able to bring us to God. Only a new birth can bring us to God. 
There are people today who refuse a new birth because they're religion. They're afraid to change their religion, so they say. They're afraid to give up that which they have inherited from their parents. Friend, do not be deceived. Jesus tells this religious leader, unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. It's a radical testimony, but it's a rejected testimony. Thirdly, it's a restoring testimony. As radical as the testimony of Jesus was to Nicodemus, and even though this testimony was met by rejection, the testimony of Jesus does not end here. The center of Jesus' testimony is found in verses 14 through 15 in our passage. Look at what Jesus tells Moses, what Jesus tells Nicodemus. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Remember what I said at the beginning of the sermon? That we must understand this passage against the backdrop of the people in chapter, 20, in chapter 2, verse 23 and 25, who had a misinformed faith, who had a superficial faith. They believed in Jesus, but, but Jesus didn't really have a very high view of their faith. It was not a saving faith. The question is, what is different now in verses 14 and 15 what is different in this faith, in the saving faith that Jesus says, unless you believe in me, you cannot have eternal life? What is different between chapter 2 and chapter 3? Well, the difference is verse 14. There is an, an illustration, there is a comparison that Jesus gives in this verse that I think we need to be careful to look closely and, and examine it. It's a story when Israel continued to grumble against God even though God made a covenant with them. And the story is found after they leave Mount Sinai. Remember what happened in the book of Exodus? At the end of the book of Exodus, God came among his people. The temple was finished. The glory of God filled the temple. And when God finished telling them all the laws, then they started moving towards the promised land from Mount Sinai. And you see that start of, of, of journey or that continuation of journey in Numbers chapter 10. Well, as it happens, even though the people of Israel saw everything God had done for them, they saw the glory of God in their midst. They saw the two tablets of stone. They saw the Ark of the Covenant. And then they saw the, the tabernacle of meeting, the tent of meeting. All of these testimonies of God, they still grumbled against God. So as a result, God brings against His own people fiery serpents to bite them. And as a result of these serpents and the, and the bites of these serpents, many in Israel started dying. And Israel realized, the Israelites realized, this is God's plague against us. So they go to Moses and, and ask Moses to forgive them and, and confess their sins before God. So Moses prays to the Lord to take away this plague of serpents. And the Lord does take away the plague, but notice how. Numbers 21, 8 and 9. The Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. When anyone, then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. 
That's how God took away the plague. He didn't take away the, just the snakes. He provided a, a bronze snake so that people can look at the snake and be healed and continue to live. In a similar way, Jesus testifies about himself, saying, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now the question comes, do we now believe the testimony of Jesus? Do we believe the testimony of Jesus not simply in his miracles, but the fact that he had to be crucified in order to give us a new life. Friends, the only way to experience this new life is if we look to Jesus. Without this new birth, we cannot see and enter the kingdom of God. Do we believe this? Or do we believe there are other ways besides Jesus? How to get to heaven. We're called to look to Jesus not only with our physical eyes, we're called to look to Jesus as the only one who can save us from our sins and give us this new life. So the testimony of Jesus is radical when you first hear it. It's also, it's, it can be rejected if you don't believe it. But it also may be restoring if you accept the claim that Jesus is the one and only one who came from heaven in order to bring us into the kingdom of God. Now imagine for a moment, my dear friend, what if those Israelites told Moses, Moses, we're not sure if we want to believe your testimony. I mean, what scientific fact do we have that if we look at the serpent, we will be healed? We just don't know if we can believe your testimony. Friends, those Israelites had no other alternative. Their death was imminent. And because of that, they said, wow, we are doomed to death. If we're not looking at the snake, we're doomed to death. So they believed the testimony of Moses. Now the question comes, when Jesus comes, the one who came from God, the one who came from above and is giving us his testimony, the question is, do we believe his testimony? If we do, it is a restoring testimony. It's a testimony that brings us new life. Dear friends, it's not enough to be impressed by Jesus' miracles. It is not enough to believe that he was a great teacher. It's not enough to believe that if we have Bible knowledge, that will be enough. The only faith that saves us is the one which believes that Christ was lifted up on the cross so that by looking at him in faith and repentance, we too can experience a new birth, a new life that is given to us from above. Jesus told Pilate in John 18, 37, For this reason I was born, and as we celebrate today, and as we prepared our, to celebrate the birth of Christ, we need to be reminded, for this reason I was born, says Jesus. For this reason I came into the world, to testify to the truth. And just a few days earlier, he told his disciples, I am the way, the truth, and the life. In other words, Jesus not only came to bring us the testimony of God, but he was the testimony of God. He is both the one who brought us the good news and he is the good news. In Christ, the messenger and the message become one. He brings us the testimony of God and he is the testimony of God to Israel and to the world and to us. It's a radical testimony. 
It's a rejected testimony, but it's also a restoring testimony if we accept his sacrificial death on our behalf. My dear friend, have you been born again? And if so, are you living your new birth? Let us pray. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came to testify to us of the things of God. And he came to tell us and, and witness to us what is the way for us to get back to you. How can we experience the kingdom of God? Father, we thank you that Jesus Christ is the testimony that you have sent us. Lord, we pray that we would have hearts that are open. Open to you, open to the testimony of Jesus, open to the new birth. Lord, for those of us who have experienced it, we pray that we would see the joy and the pleasures and the satisfaction that we can experience in our new birth. Lord Jesus, we pray that as we prepare to celebrate baptism this morning, I pray that you would allow this picture to be a vivid picture of the new life that we can experience with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Dear friends, we continue our, our morning worship today with, with the ordinance of baptism. And for those of you who are not familiar with this ordinance, or even for those of us who are very familiar with it, I would like to let you know what this ordinance symbolizes. If you would like to follow along, the explanation is provided in your bulletins on the front page, on the left page of the inside of the bulletin.